0: Dave Baker and I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins the outs and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is Cynthia Rothrock. Who is Cynthia Rothrock? Well she's a world-class martial artist who holds seven different black belts. She's also been the star of over 40 feature films With physical ability and on screen persona that's hard as nails, she should become a household name. But unfortunately, damn, she should have become. She should have gotten that right. (laughs) She should have become a household name. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. March 8, 1957, in Wilmington, Delaware. Cynthia Ann Christine was a rambunctious child. After her family moved to Scranton, Pennsylvania, she began taking martial arts classes. Can you imagine if the office had starred Cynthia Rothrock? It would have been a way, way better show. Also way more mullets. Also way more high kicks. And way more um, beckoning with your front fingers at uh, a bunch of people to come attack you. Uh, At age 21, Cynthia married a kung fu instructor named Ernest Rothrock. She quickly made a name for herself in the international martial arts scene. She took world championships in forms and weapons every year from 1981 to 1985. And just so we're clear, forms and weapons are two separate uh, martial arts practices and they don't actually involve combat. They involved, they, or they do involve more um, uh, like exhibitionist, uh, formal uh, formal displays of the craft. So it's more
1: kind of like... The, the bodybuilding...
0: Yeah, it's kind of um, like, look at me do this high kick and like, yeah. look how perfectly my legs are in a straight line. Or yeah. like, look at me use this, you know, these nunchucks <laughs> or this crazy, whatever that weapon is, where it's like a stick with a sword on the end of the stick yeah so she took she took uh, world championships every year for four years in a row in the 80s which is nuts this was something of anomaly in the uh late 70s and early 80s for a white woman to be at the top of the sport obviously um she had black belts like a lot of black belts in tang Soo Do, taekwondo uh eagle claw wushu northern shaolin yin kung fu Pilim white dragon kung fu
1: and like two or three others i think um are there any? Is this a is that a thing anymore? Hmm. Where just like a random white person just becomes like a master of martial arts? Is that a, like that? That used to happen all the time. Yeah. like that, that. was just a thing that happened a worse. lot in the seventies.
0: But uh, I mean, you're kind of conflating two things. There's because the the thing that you're talking about is like here in America, we would take notice of a white person in air quotes becoming a master at something because we're in America and you know, prior to the late 60s, early 70s, we weren't really interested or even aware of the various martial arts. Yeah. And then, you know, certain people like Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris um, helped popularize. Because, like, Chuck, Chuck Norris learned... Um, Taekwondo when he was in the military in Korea and then he brought it back here and opened a bunch of dojos like before he was a movie star and before he was a stunt man he was just like a small business owner where he opened like a a string of Taekwondo might not have been Taekwondo but I think I'm pretty sure it was Taekwondo um, uh, martial arts you know dojos and he would just like teach people like kind of the basics of everything um, and that happened with a lot of people. That's how Bruce Lee paid rent for a long-ass time is he, like, taught people martial arts, um, you know, when he was over here trying to get his acting thing started. Yeah. Um, but but I think the reason is because, like, there's just entrenched racism surrounding some of these things. So when there's an Asian person who is objectively a master at the craft, it's it doesn't get as much signal, you know, as somebody who is— Well, that's, that's kind of what I mean is, like, yeah. nowadays— yeah, there's just no need um, for that because yeah. we we a were aware of what these practices and you know this medium is, and b we're I mean I, don't, I was about to say more open to we're not we're still as xenophobic and shitty and racist as we always were.
1: Yeah, but instead, like it, that may may not be uh, much improved. But ultimately, if somebody was like, oh, this white person, it's like a master of this, it would people would be like it would be just viewed as very problematic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just...
0: I mean, I think the conversation around cultural appropriation and martial arts has definitely increased in volume over the, you know, four or five decades that it's been popular here in the States, for sure. You know, um, obviously it existed way before that, but just with the proliferation of movies and the proliferation of, like, the 70s kung fu explosion and Shaw Brothers movies being imported over here and Bruce Lee becoming an American icon, like... All of those things dovetail
1: into a broader understanding of it. And I I guess my question is, is the is the feed has the feedback loop of that increased understanding and awareness and then uh, increased scrutiny of cultural appropriation? led to less uh, like white people like getting into these things and wanting to be I don't know. That's like, interesting... a, like a martial arts expert because it doesn't seem as much of a, number one, doesn't seem as much of a novel thing to do. And number two, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't want to be the white person with dreadlocks or whatever.
0: <laughs> right. I don't know. That's a good question. I think there's also, you know, not that there aren't people still obviously excelling in these crafts, but... The real estate that is dedicated to action martial arts films in America specifically, just just in America, obviously there's still massive industries in, in you know, the East, but here in, in America, it's not as much a thing. You know, now action movies are just kind of like the nice guy who has abs that we can put a cacophony of CG around, yeah. you know, so it's just the models have just shifted, you know, like there was a point in time where it's like if you wanted to be an action star you had to know some sort of martial arts. Like that was the thing mm-hmm. we need to be able to, have you ever placed in a martial arts competition? Cause we need to be able to sell this movie off of the back of you being a kickboxing semi-finalist,
1: you now know? You, now you can just be like, we're a family. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. We got to drive together cause we're a family. Yeah. Pretty
0: much. Or like there's a storm coming and they won't know what hit them or other, you know, vague platitudes like that in the trailer, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Don't you know, I'm back for revenge. Jim from The Office can become a huge action star. They
0: offered him Captain America. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. How weird is that? Nuts, you know? They offered the guy who put a fucking banana in his butt from Not Another Teen Movie, <laughs> Captain America. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. all
1: so strange.
0: Yeah, and he's like arguably one of the biggest action stars on the planet. Yep. I guess that's maybe a little bit different because I don't know <clears> if <throat> I would say any of those guys are action. They're superheroes, though, which is almost a step above now. Like, that level of kind of, you know, the pervasiveness of directed VHS action movies, all that real estate has just been subsumed by, like, shitty comic book movies. Yeah. Or well, sh- shitty superhero movies, specifically.
1: Now it's like with with, with visual effects and, and what we can do technologically, you can make, you know, Chris Evans is obviously a specimen of a human being yeah visually yes but in terms of a, a person somebody who has no experience or training in any kind of combat or anything like that yeah and you can turn that person just an actor into a huge action star by just crafting that around them and they just have to look really good as opposed to back then you have somebody like sammo hung who just like totally lo- looks like a human frog man <laughs> yeah yeah he looks like a drunk uncle but he's badass
0: oh he's so badass yeah. In 1983, Cynthia Rothrock was part of Ernie Reyes's West Coast demonstration team, which if you're unfamiliar with Ernie Reyes, uh, he's the pizza delivery guy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And he's also the suit actor yeah. for, I don't remember, was it Donatello Was he was the suit actor for? Him? Uh, Yes, he was the suit actor for Donatello. Um. Yeah. And so he's kind of another one of those, I would say he's probably just above this, the kind of the level that Cynthia Rothrock kind of climaxed at, you know, there was like in the 90s, there was this massive influx of direct-to-VHS martial arts movies. And, you know, you had these stars of these movies, people like Don the Dragon Wilson, Olivier Grunner, and Cynthia Rothrock, among many, many, many others. Um, but they kind of all filled a template, right? They were like, I am a former martial artist. I won some championships. Usually, honestly, Cynthia Rothrock is kind of a, an aberration in this because it's usually kickboxing. Like, I don't know what it is about kickboxers, but there's a lot of fuckers who won kickboxing tournaments that then became, like, C-list action stars. But Ernie Reyes is, like, just above that. He's, like, you know, he's, like, isn't he in, like, Batman Returns? Oh, no, Don the Dragon Wilson is in, in Batman Returns. He, Ernie Reyes is in one of the Batman movies as, like, a fucking gangbangery dude who Batman punches, you know, one second. And they, they like, all these guys kind of have a role like that, where you're in, you're in one shot of an A-list movie... And, like, that was your one time to really, like, do your high kick or your, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme splits or whatever it is that you were going to do. And if the producer was there that day and really liked you, you actually might have a career. And if they weren't, then you went and worked for Roger Corman or, you know, Empire Pictures or, you know, Charlie Band, one of these kind of, like, direct TVHS schlock masters. And they just signed you up to, like, a 13-film contract and you just produced a
1: shitload of movies. The modern-day equivalent of that, which is kind of different cause it's, it's more of a, it's more of a half step going from this to, to movies is professional wrestlers. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. like I said, that's a little different because they're already sort of doing this theatrical thing that yeah. number one, they've qualified that they're at least some element of good at acting and it's,
0: or at least if not <coughs> acting performing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wrestlers and like to a certain degree, MMA fighters like, like, uh, um, Gina Car- Carano, Carano. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of. The, that's kind of the benefactor of that now. That's yeah, the thing totally. that happens.
0: Whereas like if, if Gina Carano or uh, what's her name? She's in the Fast and Furious movies too, Blonde, uh, she was a MMA fighter, Ronda Rousey. Like those types of people... If this was 1991, they wouldn't be starring in Star Wars movies. They would be in, you know, Gina Carano is the revengist. Yeah. You know, or, you know, Ronda Rousey's had enough of your shit and now she's coming for your skull. You know, like that's, all those movies are that thing. You know, the trailer or the, the box art is them holding a gun and there's a building that's on fire and somebody's in the bottom corner of the VHS box kicking. Like- Regardless of the genre, it could take place all in a jungle. There's a building on fire, a large shot of somebody's head holding a gun, and somebody kicking. That's just all these movies are. Yeah. You could almost swap out the titles, which a lot of them do. Like a lot of these movies and these VHS uh, franchises, they would just make a bunch of movies and then slot them together in a franchise if they got traction with one of the movies. Like Don the Dragon Wilson had a whole career based off of these films called Blood Fist. And the first Blood Fist movie was actually titled Blood Fist, and it's basically just poor man's Enter the Dragon, but with all of the cast members in the movie being martial arts champions or kickboxing champions from the last couple years. So there's like the Olympic gold medalist in kickboxing, the actual you know kickboxing champion, which was Don the Dragon Wilson. He's the star. Then you have you know the 1989. Uh, you know, fucking Kung Fu guy, the karate guy from 1987, and, like, you just put them all in a movie, none of them can really act, and then they just punch each other, and then the movie's over. A lot of these movies, you would make, you know, <coughs> X amount of movies, and then you would start releasing them, and if you got one of them that was a hit, then you just piled onto that one. And so, all of the Blood Fist movies, I think there's seven of them, all Blood Fist movies that basically made Don the Dragon Wilson's career... None of them were intended to be Blood Fist movies. They were just titled that. And they are so disparate that uh, Blood Fist 3 was intended to be an actual theatrical film that was a real movie where it was like them in a prison. It was a, It's basically a prison drama script starring Richard fucking Roundtree. Shaft. Shaft is the fucking like big draw in this movie, but they just last minute put Don the Dragon Wilson in the movie. So it's a heartfelt drama about life in prison. And then at three points in the movie, the beginning, the middle and the end, there's just kickboxing fights. And that's just what you did. Yeah. You know, because you just what do we got to do to get <laughs> the financing? Oh, we're making a sequel to Blood Fist. Well, the character's name is different. It doesn't matter. It's a sequel to Blood Fist. And all the Bloodfist movies are like that. Like they're just kind of a script that somebody had that they could figure out how to put kickboxing in somewhere. Like I think Don, I think it's either the second or the fourth one. I don't remember because they get kind of jumbled because they're all you know they are what they are. Uh, it's a case of uh, mistaken identity where Don the Dragon Wilson is a, a lowjack guy, but somebody thinks. That he's stealing a car in the opening scene of the movie. So they try to come and be like, that's my car, stop stealing it. And then they have a kickboxing fight on the front lawn of this guy's house. Why? Because everybody knows how to kickbox. And that's kind of the aesthetic of these movies. And that's honestly, that's that's why they're so kind of charming to me. Because they all have this weird, like almost meta-narrative. That just like, everybody in the world is physically prepared for anything. So you got to just be on your game
1: well, always. It's, yeah. It's this, it's this great form of magical realism. That's completely that, unintentional, but yeah, wonderful. That, that I think the movie that, you know, we'll talk about that sort of kickstarted Cynthia Rothrock's career. Yeah. Um, has it in spades yes. and it's, and it's, we'll get into it, but it's, yeah. it's great.
0: Um, so in 1983, she joins Ernie Reyes's West coast demonstration team. Um, While at an exhibition match, a producer for Golden Harvest, the famed production company that produces like a shitload of movies, uh, saw Rothrock and was like, you kid, you need to be in the moving pictures, see? And two years later, Cynthia Rothrock would star in Yes Madam, which is a bizarre title for what is a fucking awesome movie. I I fucking
1: love it. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Remember the episode about Message from Space? Yeah. Where I was kind of like, ah, eh, this is the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love this movie. Yeah, it's so good, right? It's so fucking good. Yeah. Listen, Dave, the only question to answer is which one of us is Michelle? Which, yeah. Mi- Michelle Yo and, and, and which one of us is Cynthia Rothrock? That is a really
0: good question, and I feel like... I don't really know. They're kind of their characters aren't
1: all that defined in the movie. I they mean, char- are, though, because Cynthia Rothrock, she's a tough as nails foreign police officer who doesn't want who 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 isn't about bullshitting around with the criminals. Yeah. And she thinks that you have to get in there and force the truth out of them. Yeah. And Michelle Yeoh is. A sly, by the books, but secretly kind of on the back end, not by the books uh, uh, detective who's always one step ahead of everybody. Which one do you want? You can just have whichever one you want. I kind of want <laughs> Cynthia Rothrock, but what, whichever one you want, you can have. I I kind of. It's. Uh... I I feel like you're maybe a little bit more of a Michelle Yeoh, okay, if I'm sure. being honest. Yeah, sure. Is it my lack of mullet? I mean, she's got she's got something brewing up there. Yeah, as well. Yeah, she really does. Or is it because
0: I'm <coughs> slender and uh, you're surprised that I can kick as much ass as I can because I look like a beauty queen? It's 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 a it's an energy. I'm not I'm not I'm not going for the physical thing here. It's just it's
1: <laughs> it's, it's it's there's a there's like these essences that I've, I'm, I've I I take that as a high
0: thing. compliment because Michelle Yo is regal as fuck. Yeah. You know who's not typically regal as fuck? Me. But I will take that compliment.
1: And the name of the movie because you know there's like the alternate title which is yeah. like you always love to see that. Where oh, it's yes. like yes madam aka uh Police Assassin 2 Streets of Dragon uh Death or death whatever. Yeah yeah yeah. Um but I I don't know when we when we're going to talk about this, but I have this grander theory about this movie and I think that Yes Madam Plays into it, and it's the exact appropriate title for this movie. So, as as Andrew just said, the
0: title of the movie is Yes, Madam, and it was also released under the alternate title, Police Assassins. And I, th- I feel like it was re- released in um, Malaysia as well, but it was released in, in the UK as Police Assassins. Um, it was... Uh, a, it, yes Madam is a 1985 Hong Kong martial arts crime film directed by Corey Yoon. The film stars former beauty queen Michelle Yeoh, who you know from movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, television shows like Star Trek Discovery, um, and everything ever. Um, uh, the wedding movie that I've seen, and I can't remember the title of now, that she was just in last year, that huge, successful, the fuck is the name of that movie? Crazy Rich Asian? Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah,
1: it's – she's amazing. I know we're talking about Cynthia Rothrock, but – We could do a whole episode just on Michelle Yeoh. She's amazing. But Michelle Yeoh in this movie? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes. She is the emphatic emphatic nodding. She is so cool. She is so cool in this movie. And the crazy part is she wasn't a martial martial artist before this. Like, she learned all of this shit and launched an entire career – as a martial artist, because she does martial arts in a shitload of movies off of this movie. Like literally, she was a fucking beauty queen
1: before this. And there, and yes, her her um, her part of the combat in this is definitely noticeably less uh, technically proficient. Um, and Cynthia Rothrock is doing the lion's share, but even Michelle Yeoh, and this is just a testament to, uh, once again, about going back to message of space, message from space, and my issues with that. Uh, this is a testament to uh, just the balls to the wall bravery of of Chinese filmmaking. Yeah, some of the even though her her uh, her martial arts stuff in this is obviously kind of number one aided by editing and number two, you know, just not as proficient as Cynthia Rothrock. She does a couple of stunts in this that are like, I mean, my favorite stunt in the whole movie is from her. Which like, one is your favorite? When she flies leg first down the giant staircase and yeah. just full on body kicks the guy across the room. And it's like real. Yeah, it's great. My
0: favorite one from her is when they're fighting on that second level and she there's like a glass partition on the banister. She's up on the banister and then she drops down and catches her legs on the banister and swings reverse through the glass up and then grabs his legs. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, obviously it's sugar glass, but fuck me. Yeah. When I saw that shit, I was like, you are so awesome. You're so awesome. And honestly, that's kind of what every, every shot in this movie
1: that either of them are in. You just are just just like, you're awesome. That's why I said, I I wasn't joking when I said, I wasn't making like some dumb joke when I said like, which one of us is which I meant it. I want to be these characters. I want to make this movie and I want to play these characters. The, the, the magical realism of it, like, uh, and there, there's, uh, there, John Woo talks about this in like, I think it was the commentary, one of the commentaries for hard boiled and they were just talking, he was, he was talking about, um, one of the villains in the movie and how, whenever they were shooting the movie, they were just, they kept just coming up with like shots Um, to just that were they were just trying to like come up with like the coolest visual shots they could come up with for like making the characters like look really cool. And so a lot of the shots of the villain, like it was just that that actor, he was just coming up with ideas to like just make himself look really cool. And I feel like that is kind of like an overarching theme in chinese action and kung fu cinema is like they just really go out of their way to create like aesthetically pleasing um and not from like a cinema- cinematography standpoint but from just like just making their actors just look really cool uh, especially in the 80s and i feel like every moment in this movie with with the two lead characters is just that of like what is the coolest fucking thing you can think of there's a scene once again, go, going back to magical realism where Michelle Yeoh walks out of a building with her sort of lackeys in tow. She's dressed in this just garish 80s neon outfit and she just has one hand in a pocket and she just strolls out. And it's like no, it's, nobody would ever do that. Like it's, it's like it's like literally like she's a fashion model. Like it's yeah. like it's a, it's a fashion model walking down a catwalk. But it's so rad, though. And it's, like, it's just the coolest fucking shot. Yeah. And then there are just these scenes, especially when they the two of them get together, where there's just these awesome shots where it's just them back-to-back putting up their fists. And it's like, this is just so fucking cool. I mean, Everything about this is so fucking cool. And that's such a trope, too,
0: of, right? Of, like, you start off as, like, disgruntled frenemies and then you have to team up against a thing, right? But the the <laughs> way it happens in this movie where... So much of it is just kind of done with, like, guys running into a room holding guns or with swords or whatever. And, like, they just kind of, like, look at each other and they're like, all right, let's 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 fucking punch the shit out of these dudes. Like, it's so fucking great. Yeah. Like, I—and also, like, obviously Michelle Yeoh has screen presence because she's, like, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, right? Like, she's gone on to do hundreds of movies and she's amazing. Yeah. But it's so impressive that Cynthia Rothrock—because, you know— some of the other Cynthia Rothrock movies, you know, she's, she's good, but she's kind of like, she's the best thing in the movie. And there's nothing for her to like really try and climb over. You know what I mean? Like nobody's fighting her for the screen. It's a Cynthia Rothrock movie. Even when yeah. she's not the main character in a movie, you're always like, who the fuck was that? Whoa, she was cool. Like, you know, she's the, what's that adage? There are no small actors, just small parts or something. Yeah. Yeah perfect example of that like she fucking owns everything she's in but in this movie and it's so kind of heartbreaking that she never really had another movie that challenged her in this way obviously like she's so you can tell she's fighting for the screen with michelle yo mm-hmm. and that it makes both of them better yeah and like she never got another movie like this like her the rest of her oeuvre is kind of they are what they are which i like though i like a lot of them and she's <laughs> great in everything but there's something about being challenged and being forced to do your best work that maybe, you know, making a schlocky Roger Carman movie in two weeks isn't going to bring out your best, you know?
1: Yeah. At that point, you're just kind of whatever, whatever is in the can is what it is. Yeah. Um, I have to say, though, something that, I, that occurred to me as I was watching and I was like, something is familiar about this. Uh, Cynthia Rothrock looks like a combination of Patricia Arquette and David Duchovny.
0: That is the most bizarre thing you've ever said. She, her, I don't disagree, I but see that, is, that is really bizarre. I see that in her face. Yeah, except she's more emotive than David Duchovny.
1: Shots fired! <laughs> Especially in that first couple seasons of X-Files.
0: Or the one where his dad dies and he has to cry. <laughs> and He can't do it, so he just buries his
1: head in his elbow and he's like, uh huh <laughs> well even by then he had gotten a little bit better but in those yeah. first two seasons yeah, it was like this is a guy yep you know they got they got a the pizza man to be the star of this show
0: you know who's not that though Jillian Anderson nope she's amazing she's great she's amazing so anyway Michelle Yeoh stars as senior inspector Ng who is uh, a who's forced to team up with inspector Carrie Morris played by Cynthia Rothrock um, to obtain a microfiche film that has been stolen unknowingly by a lower tier gang members. And I, I honestly, anytime there's microfilm, microfiche, any sort of weird old
1: technology, I love it. I mean, even just going like little little touches, little, little like 80s cinema tropes that we just have completely abandoned that I just wish would come back. Like every time that the microfiche gets revealed on camera, There's that little musical cue, the like that little like ominous like chime. Yep. Like we don't do that anymore. We know there's no like little like suspenseful music chime whenever a plot MacGuffin is revealed. Yeah. And it's so it's just like it's just telling it's like the the score is telling you this is here's this thing. thing." Here's the thing that we're all looking, for. but it's so great. Yeah, I agree.
0: And like we've been talking about that the direction is so kinetic and so. Like energetic, that one. They're both great. Two, the action is really fun. The choreography is really, really nice. But the way everything is shot <laughs> with, you know, speed ramping cameras and, uh, you know, you you know, guys running high frame rates, high frame rates. The the guys running at the action as it's happening and then yanking the camera back as somebody falls into it. You know, the the quick cuts being purposeful quick cuts and not like how so many modern movies where it's like. Paul Greengrass style shaky cam and then just like 50 cuts in the course of 50 seconds to just disorient the viewer. Like it's all you know, contact cut based. So whenever a punch lands, then you're cutting to an opposing angle or when the action reframes, then you're establishing a new line. So the camera's on the left and then, you know, scuffle, scuffle, scuffle characters stand back up again. And now the camera reorients and now it's on the right to establish a new paradigm of power between the two characters. Like it's so, it's so well thought out, you know, and it's, it, it, the movie is not a big budgeted movie either. It's
1: not like they have like millions of dollars. Yeah,
0: and the the uh,
1: the the martial arts choreography isn't. Nece- it's not the most uh, proficient or uh, inspired, uh, you know, of all time. Um, but I th- I think it might be wo- some of the most fun. Yeah, it's uh, really fun. Uh, m- martial arts and action choreography in in one of these uh, Chinese. Uh, and action, honestly, action just movies. it's it's so fun, too, because
0: Cynthia Rothrock's haircut is amazing. Yeah. And every time she does something with that stupid little mullet thing, it just makes me so happy.
1: Every, just, that's the th- it's, everything about the movie is just so aesthetically perfect. Yeah. Or just not maybe not aesthetically perfect, yeah. but aesthetically exactly in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, aesthetically yeah. Aesthetically perfect to me.
0: Yeah. Or even like Michelle Yeoh's like baby blue uh, overcoat from the, like the middle of the movie. I think it's the middle of the movie um yeah i i fucking yeah it's it's so so fun because it is so not self-aware like it is it is to the hilt trying to do the thing and i love that it is it's not ironically doing the thing it's not like yeah this is the action movie with the ladies yeah it's a fucking balls to the wall action movie and the leads are female commence punching like and also the weird supporting characters are so funny and great and like I mean yeah the actors are so idiosyncratic yeah the, I was like just,
1: I was literally just gonna use the word the movie is very idiosyncratic and not only that but I, like I said before I have I have a theory about how this all ties together and why these things are all the way that they are maybe
0: I could just list a couple of these things and you can give them a rating out of ten from one to ten uh, mullets how many you would give them one to ten mullets. Yeah. So, um, <coughs> the kineticness of the directing, one to ten. Ten mullets. Uh, the charisma of the leads, borderline 11 mullets. <laughs> the 80s haircuts, 15 mullets. <laughs> the fact that Michelle Yeoh did all her own stunts,
1: infinite mullets.
0: <laughs> uh, there's a scene where Rothrock has to rip her skirt in order to do. Uh, a high kick which I'm always a fan of ripping some piece of clothing to do something I love ripping a Ripping a sleeve off in order to punch somebody. I love uh, unbuttoning a shirt in order to punch somebody. Ripping, you don't see people ripping pants that much, but ripping a skirt is always fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love that as a symbol of just like I am aware that social decorum uh, requires me to stay within these bounds and I will not stay within these bounds. Let's get this fucking shit done. I love that. I
1: love it so much. I mean, the 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 pinnacle of that being in the movie Lucky Stars when the 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 Japanese uh, fighter is wearing that like traditional kimono and then she disrobes and then she's just a fucking like ripped ass, (laughs) buff ass bodybuilder. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh,
0: So should we go through the history of these movies and the kind of subgenre that it spawns a little bit or do you want to talk about your thing right now? Uh,
1: let's go through that and then okay. it, can, it can sort All of right. dovetail into that. So
0: the combination of Yes, Madam, which then leads to Police Story 3, Supercop, which has Michelle Yeoh as one of the leads, and uh, Holy Weapon. Also, uh, also great. Yes. Great movies. Yes. Um, they basically kind of cement Michelle Yeoh as a superstar. Like kind of without these three movies, Michelle Yeoh could have easily have been Cynthia Rothrock. Like if, if Cynthia Rothrock had starred in Police Story three and Holy Weapon, we might be having we might be doing an episode about Michelle Yeoh right now. Yeah. Um, the the movie, yes, madam, uh, actually made like a shitload of money at the box office, and it launched a franchise. Uh, and I know you're looking at the outline right now, but if you hadn't seen what's coming up in the outline right now, what would you guess with the name of the franchise that "Yes, Madam"
1: spawned would be? Um, I mean, I I, I I think you're you're there's a loaded. You're asking me to the I'm, the, I'm, an, the answer that you want is "Yes, Madam," right?
0: I mean, I I was
1: yes, Madam too. Yeah,
0: well, yeah you would think that it would spawn a franchise around the phrase "Yes, Madam," <laughs> but it doesn't at all because none of these martial arts and specifically you know direct to VHS martial arts movies. They always have bizarre titles that have nothing to do. They're just kind of like Gennaro, like... Plus that that title is so specific to the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it spawns a franchise called In the Line of Duty, which is the most bland franchise title yeah. ever. <laughs> And the individual movies within that franchise, the first one is Yes, Madam. The second one is Royal Warriors, which was also put out under the title Police Assassins. So there are two movies put out under the title Yes, Madam and Royal Warriors were both put out uh, as Police Assassins. Then in the Line of Duty 3, so there never was an In the Line of Duty 2. In the Line of Duty 3 was also released under the title uh, Force of the Dragon. In the Line of Duty 4 which was released in the UK as just In the Line of Duty, which stars a young Donnie Yen. Uh, and then <laughs> the fifth movie is titled Middleman. Middleman. I love it. Also in the UK released as In the Line of Duty f- uh, 5, colon Middleman. In Line of Duty 6? No, uh-uh. It's Seawolves. Seawolves. Seawolves is In the Line of Duty 6. and then, f- uh, <laughs> And then next up, we're returning to the old title, yes, madam. Ninety-two colon a serious shock, and then the seventh movie in the franchise is released under the title Yes, madam five. Even though it's seven, it's released as
1: Yes, madam five. And there's only, and it doesn't even make sense because there's only, it's only the third Yes, madam titled yes. movie. So even, yes. even that the, doesn't make sense. Yeah, the math is just wrong on every level. It's so funny because you know back in back in the 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 seventies, eighties, and nineties lesser so in the nineties, but you know, there really wasn't any established, um, uh, infrastructure for movie continuity, the way that we have it now or everything, you know, it's like, it has to be built into this living larger machine yeah. and the the yeah. title has to like make sense within this larger f- infrastructure. But, you know, really back then it was, it was the titling of movies was all driven by distribution channels. So it's like, whatever, this movie needs to be named in order to sell well on VHS. That's what we're going to call it. Yep, pretty much.
0: That's why you get things where it's, you know, there's like, you know, uh, Puppet Master 5 and then the theatrical movie being called Puppet Master the Movie, even though it's Puppet Master 6. And there's like all of this weird, just complete bullshit. Also, Puppet (laughs) Master the Movie never was released. I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm just saying when it was going to be made, it was going to be called Puppet Master the Movie. Like... It's just so bizarre. And I, I kind of love it. Like, I really love complicated bullshit franchise stuff like this. Yeah. It makes me so happy. Because it feels like life. Like, you never play in life. Like, I love when a franchise has an installment that's titled the final something or the last something. Like, the final chapter. Or, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's dead the last one like no it's not
1: yeah no it's not
0: i know it's not gonna be i mean they literally
1: they they had announced the trilogy of the other two halloween movies after the most recent one yeah and the last one is called halloween ends yeah and then they like immediately said it wasn't the last one yeah like they didn't even they didn't even pretend yeah even before the movie's made they didn't even pretend like it's really gonna be the last one yeah so fucking funny
0: um, so, you know, yes, madam is very successful and it kind of spawns a, a new sh- subgenre of, of
1: Hong Kong films. Uh, this, this sub genre. Also, is- by the way, before you go onto that. Uh, the, yet the original "Yes, Madam," if you if you didn't know, uh, was written by uh, a guy named Barry Wong, and he wrote "Hard Boiled." Uh, oh, and, whoa! And, and "Twin Dragons."
0: Yes, Madam spawns a subgenre of Hong Kong films, <laughs> uh, which is often referred to referred to as the "Girls with Guns" subgenre. Uh, Other movies in this genre include Women on the Run, The Inspector Wears Skirts, which there are not one, not two, not three, but four Inspector Wears Skirts movies. Um, The first couple, which I I really like, Um, Dreaming in Reality, Her Name is a Cat, oh, Her Name is Cat, sorry, Blonde Fury, Iron Angel, Black Cat, Black Cat 2, colon, The Assassination of President Yeltsin, which I feel like that title pretty much just, it says it all, um, and these movies for probably about, you know, a decade, maybe eight years, they kind of just dominated a corner of the martial arts movie market. Like every martial arts movie that got made from like 1982 to 1995 or so, you know, sporadically with, you know, waves was just one of these movies where you, you take a, you know, a cool martial arts trained woman, sometimes not even a martial arts trained woman, but just like a, a cute girl and you put them in a crime scenario and then they just beat the living fuck out of everybody and they kind of are you know the, the character archetypes are usually you know it's a it's what you think it is it's i have a gun i'm in you know a, some sort of police or detective character and i'm no nonsense and i'm not going to take any of your shit and i'm going to shoot everybody um some other actresses who came up during this time um uh, that are of note are uh, cynthia khan uh known for appearing in in the line of duty um, she, she's in five of the seven in the line of duty movies. Um, she's also in Queens high, uh, and the evening quartet. Um, Cynthia Khan is awesome. She's super cool, but I'm not going to front. I, I kind of like all these people I'm going to talk about very briefly are, are really, really neat. And I highly encourage you to go check out their movies, but Cynthia Rothrock is the, the best. I love her so much. Um, Uh, Moon Lee is kind of like the TV or the small screen version of this kind of archetype of woman. Um, she got her big break, um, in a movie called, uh, Iron Eagles, AKA Angels, uh, AKA Iron Angels, uh, which is basically kind of an Asian Charlie's Angels style thing. Um, and then she kind of parlayed that success into 30, three zero girls with guns movies. Um. Yes, Madam would set Cynthia Rothrock up as one of the kind of promising talents of the martial arts world. Um, and in 1985 alone, she would star in Yes, Madam, 24 Hours to Midnight, and Defend Yourself. And after this, uh, uh, after this ad break, we will talk about Defend Yourself because it's fucking amazing. <laughs> Before we talk about Defend Yourself, should we talk about your theory of Yes, Madam, now?
1: Yes. So kind of opening up the whole thing about this movie, starting the girls with guns genre even wider. Now, number one, I I admit that I'm not an expert, and I admit that I didn't do as extensive research as I could have. I could have spent days poring over endless Wikipedia pages and digging deep into random websites to try to like really get a expert sense of this. Uh, but, you know, I, I spent a couple hours and kind of did my best in the short amount of time I allocated, um, <clears throat> which is all to say that uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's going to be like, well, actually, in 1981, there was. Uh, but I, I kind of presented this to you as a theory the other day through text, and you were kind of like, oh, I don't know if that's really exactly true, um, but. I, I, I did some research, and it's from what I could find, um, this movie, Yes, Madam, seems to be one of genuinely the first um, completely uh, female-led, female-driven uh, action movies with a capital A. Uh, there, You know, and do my research, like, of course, there are precursors. Um, You know, most notably, you know, a few years before this, there was Alien that was kind of like kind of universally regarded as like one of the first female action heroes. Um, But I would say that Alien is not an action movie. It's a it's a horror movie. Um, And then there's even like people who talk about how like female action stars date back to like 1912 when they had like the like Annie Oakley uh, appearing in short in uh, short silent films where she's like you know, chasing bad guys and shooting uh, guns out of their hands and things like that. But in terms of like capital A action movies, as we understand them, the lineage of what we accept as an action movie, I really was hard pressed to find anything that existed before this movie um, that was just completely starred uh, and was exclusively uh, female driven as like the main driving hero slash heroines of the movie. Um, and so, uh, another thing that I noticed about the movie and I, I picked up on it kind of like in the second half of, of, of watching it. And I, and so much so that I actually watched it again, uh, to take notes on this, but throughout this movie, I picked up on this. If this movie had been written by women or it had been made even a few years later in the late eighties slash early nineties, then I, I wouldn't think this because that was sort of like getting into, you know, the late '80s, early '90s was getting into, uh, you know, this second wave masculine female action hero trend that that happened then. Um, but considering the fact that this movie predates that, and it was written and directed by all dudes, I get this strong sense that somebody who was involved in the writing of this movie uh, had an extreme humiliation fetish. Um, and, if you, and if you aren't familiar, there is a large community of... Uh, in, the, in, in the fetish community, there is a, there's a, uh, a, a large community of men who basically get off on being humiliated and embarrassed by women. And as I was watching this movie, it just it just occurred to me that this movie just felt very much like it has this central thrust of, like, men being embarrassed and humiliated and dominated by women. Um, Like, the movie literally starts... Like, the opening minute of the movie is a man, like a creepy flasher guy, exposing himself to Michelle Yeoh, and then she claps his dick in a book. She turns around, he goes, uh, whips out his dick, and then she slams uh, a book onto it. That's, like, the that's that's like the smash to credits uh moment in the movie um every character every this movie is you know it's it has these two central characters Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock as the two main characters um and they're both these like strong uh um uh charismatic uh confident people um that sort of always have like control of the situation and they always know what their next step is. And they seem to be like one step ahead of everybody at every turn. And then every other character in the movie is this just incompetent, hilariously doofy guy. Uh, and that's both the criminals as well as the cops. Um, every other character is just this like inept, goofy, kind of pervy dude. Um, and uh, th- there there are, there are so many other examples of this that come up. Um, the, the uh, you know, the entire movie hinges around two competent women surrounded by bumbling, idiotic men. Um, uh, there, are, there are constantly situations where, like, overly confident guys kind of, like, stroll into a situation like, oh, you're just a woman. And then they just get their asses kicked. And it's, like, humiliating for them. And everyone, like, literally just scenes of people of crowds of people laughing at people. There's, like, several moments in this movie where, like, a crowd of people just point and laugh at a man being humiliated. Um, And uh, even, even going to like the main, like the main villain of the movie and then the end of the movie, you know, spoiler alerts for if you haven't seen this movie yet, but the, you know, the main villain of the movie is this like comedically evil businessman who literally laughs like, ha, 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 ha. And he's like this overly confident guy who at every step of the movie, he's like, you can't touch me because I'm a rich man. Um, And then it all culminates to like they have this big fight. This whole thing happens at the end of the movie. The police come. They can't find the microfiche. The guy thinks he's getting away. Uh, The two women, uh, as well as these other two guys that are helping them out, get arrested because they've sort of trespassed in his building And he kind of walks away like, ha ha, like this is what happens when you are a rich, successful man. You get away with whatever you want. And then literally, first of all, as a side note, I love the ending of this movie because the movie, the the way you think the way the direction you think it's going is that like because they they have this microfiche. The guy is hiding it in his mouth and then they get it and then they burn it. And then that's like the evidence that gets destroyed. And then the police come and they're like, you're trespassing. They arrest everybody and the guy gets away free. And what you think is going to happen is that there's going to be some kind of reversal where the guy who's like, that wasn't actually the real microfiche. I have the real one right here. And then they catch him or whatever. But that doesn't happen. The microfiche that got burned was the real one. There, There is no hope of incriminating this guy. And so instead of that, they just pull out a gun and kill him. Like as a last ditch effort, one of the guys is like, fuck this. I'm not going to jail while this guy walks away free and he just grabs a gun and shoots him. And that's the way the movie ends. Like that's why this movie can't really have a continuation because it's implied that like they killed him and they're all going to jail. Like they're just going to go to prison for (laughs) murdering this guy, even though he was a bad guy and he was evil. Um, but that, that, that's like the culmination of the movie is this, this like man being like humiliated in the ultimate way. Um, and so I really, uh, you know, at its surface level, I think that this movie as, as, uh, inventive and exciting and, um, and, uh, and inventive, did I say inventive already? Uh, as inventive and exciting <laughs> and, and inventive and exciting and inventive? As and a, exciting, as, a, as inventive, exciting and unique as this movie is in terms of the staging of the combat, the choices like the guy's dick getting trapped into the book as the opening of the movie, which is like a really interesting, exciting opening shot to a movie. I also think that the, the one of the writers of the movie uh, like had this fetish where he 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 uh, fetishizes being humiliated and dominated by strong, powerful women um even there's like a scene where there's these three dudes that are like in a in a uh, mental institution or something and like this woman comes in and like wheeling in this cart and then like they it has like a chicken on it and they they're not supposed to eat oily foods or something like that but then they like attack her and like steal the chicken from her and they all like they all like these three dudes just huddle around this chicken on the floor and they just start like just uh, like feverishly and, like, uh, like, just eating this chicken as fast as they can. And then this, like, really domineering uh, head nurse comes in, and she's like, spit it out. And they all spit it out, and they kind of, like, look like little, like, injured puppies in the corner. And then she takes it away from them, and she's like, from now on, I control you. Like, every moment of this movie is, like, bleeding with this, like, humiliation domination thing. To the point where it's just like somebody was processing something when they wrote this movie. So that all being said, considering that this was a precursor to the late 80s, uh, early 90s, second wave masculine feminine action hero, the entire genre of second wave uh, masculine feminine action heroes might have been started by a dude with just extreme (laughs) domination humiliation fetish.
0: Yeah, I mean, when, we, when, we, when you had texted me about this originally, I was like, the first thing that pops into my mind is, one, I don't know what it says about me that I didn't put those things together originally because I was just so in love with both of them. I just... Like you said, I just wanted
1: to be Cynthia Rothrock or Michelle Yeoh so bad. Well, that's the thing is when you watch it, it reads and I'm not trying to diminish this aspect of it, but when you watch it, it reads as two badass women just being badasses and kicking ass. But I think it almost like maybe accidentally circumstantially came off like that when it was actually sort of rooted in this dude just like this like domination and Yeah, like yeah. Th- like this domination fixation. Yeah, it's and funny. It, and it just it, it it just also played as this archetype that developed into this massive trend in the late eighties, early nineties. So I
0: have, I have two thoughts on that. Um, one of them being that all of this stuff that you're talking about uh, reminds me of uh, William Moulton Marston, the guy who created Wonder Woman, or his, he co-created Wonder Woman, and he also created the lie detector test. And his worldview is exactly what you're talking about. He was into bondage. He was into uh, kink play involving being tied up. He thought that people's true selves emerged when they were tied up. Which is why Diana, Princess of the Amazons, has a lasso that when she ties people up, they tell the truth. Yeah, It's all, all of the early Wonder Woman comics are bondage fetishes. She's always getting tied up or tying other people up. Um, She never hurts anybody or does anything against somebody's will. But like I said, you know, you get tied up and then it reveals who your true character is, you know, either through the lasso or you get tied up. And you're like, oh, uh, please don't hurt me. I'll tell you where the Nazis are or whatever. In real life, William Moulton Marsden had two live-in partners who he had, he each, he had children with both of them. They all lived together for the majority, for the entirety of his life. And then when he died, his two female partners lived together as a romantic couple until they both died and they raised the kids together. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously this is an extreme lifestyle for 2020, let alone 19 fucking 39 or 41, um, and so it was. A, a, it's funny how so many people don't know that about Wonder Woman, and they don't think anything of the lasso or her. You know, you know, every part of her costume is symbolic to that I- identity, right? She wears a tiara because women are uh, stronger than men and should be in power, or at least that's his, you know, uh, ideal behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, she wears uh, bracelets because they look like former shackles because women used to be under the. Um, control of men but now she's taken that experience and learned from it and now she can literally reflect their um, their aggressions back at mankind bouncing their bullets off of her gauntlets Um, and it's funny how those or it's, it's fascinating how those specific ideological proclivities and also sexual fetishes Dovetail into a story that the metaphors are transformed into something that go over most people's heads, right? And then the other part of this is something that my comics friends and I joke around about a lot, which is called the Claremont window. And the Claremont window is when whatever the span of time where your personal sexual fetish aligns with the current dominant trend in feminism, because Chris Claremont's whole shtick was like at a specific point in time, Kitty Pride. That was. He loves Kitty Pride. He created Kitty Pride. His whole thing is like young girls doing things and being self-actualized, but also kind of like in a weird, creepy sort of like, you know, we see what you're doing here, buddy. You're you're getting some demons out on those pages. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that's kind of what you're describing with Yes Madam. Is it they aligned with the Claremont window. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were at they were at the the right place at the right time and, and it just
1: worked and yes. to the point where it read as just badass, yep. strong, independent women, just being badasses and kick, uh, kicking people's asses.
0: Just Joss Whedon would be a perfect example of that, too, where there was a specific window in time where the thing that he was into made a lot of sense culturally. Yeah. And now you're kind of like, oh, you're kind of creepy. Yeah. It's kind of creepy. It's kind of weird.
1: Um, but there's something... Um, there's something interesting or, or kind of cool about that sort of being reclaimed and reinterpreted. I mean, I'm not speaking about Joss Whedon, but speaking about whether it's Wonder Woman or or Yes Madam of like, maybe it started off that way, but it was sort of taken and became its own thing. Yeah, it absolutely. Took-
0: and I think the Yes Madam thing is distinctly different from the Moulton Marsden thing, because I think the Marsden thing... The Marsden thing is very nuanced and it reflects an alternate lifestyle at a time where that made you a social pariah. Mm -hmm. And also he was a psychiatrist and also those two women that he lived with, you know, his, for all intents and purposes, his wives were also in a relationship. It wasn't like a polygamy situation, like... In many ways, they were the platonic ideal of the thruple that so many dumb hipsters are like. Yeah, we have an open relationship. Like they legit did. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they raised kids together and shit. And um, I don't know. I'm just I'm just fascinated by the, the those three people. Olive of Burn, uh, Elizabeth Marston, and, and William Moulton Marston. I think they're it's a it's a very interesting dynamic, which I don't think you find that many public records of um and in fact they recently read they made a movie about it too which is called like mr marsden and the wonder women which i really i haven't seen i have like next to no interest in it
1: um, yeah i think this was an example of a guy who just it was got an extreme amount of satisfaction from getting to watch a scene filmed where michelle yo the tarantino window clapped a guy's dick in a book yeah i think so too and he went oh yep I think that's 100% what happened. I got to admit, though, it it worked for me as well.
0: (laughs) Did you watch any of Defend Yourself? I did, a little bit. I would describe uh, Defend Yourself as like, what if David Lynch and John Woo co-directed a self-defense class video? Yeah. Like the opening of the of the self-defense video is slow motion, Cynthia Rothrock walking across a sound stage where there's fog going across the floor, and there's like a one-wall set, and she's like walking, pretending to just be a normal person walking home alone at night, and some guy comes up to her and tries to take her purse, and... All of this is in slow motion. Every shot is in slow motion. And she kicks him in the groin and then palms his nose and then scratches his face. He tries to punch her and she parries it. And then they like martial arts duel for a minute. All in slow motion with synths playing over it. Like it's amazing. It's so good. And then it kind of just becomes a typical martial arts instruction class. But with these interstitial slow motion fights it's great like i kind of almost love defend yourself almost as much as yes madam like it's such a bizarre like artifact yeah i wish there was more self-help videos like this like youtube videos they don't have the same appeal no yeah
1: anyway if every every tutorial could be done in that style
0: can you imagine uh, hey guys this is uh caleb uh this is my how to use photoshop video uh please like a subscribe Click, click, stroke It's just him speed painting (laughs) Yeah, exactly
1: Click,
0: click,
1: click Stroke, stroke, click, click, stroke
0: (laughs) Like, I would watch 15 minutes of somebody drawing in slow motion (laughs) I wouldn't really, that sounds awful But like, (laughs) yeah, that'd be great um, so from here, Cynthia Rothrock's career kind of solidifies itself. She becomes a bona fide Hong Kong movie star. This is an exceedingly rare thing for a Western Caucasian actor uh, to actually you know, find a place in the Hong Kong film market, as you would probably assume. Over the next few years, Rothrock releases such films as Millionaire Express, which is also released under the title Shanghai Express, Magic Crystal, which is a movie that has a dope title and is fine. Fight to Win, a.k.a. Dangerous Passages, a.k.a. Eyes of the Dragon, which is a movie I like. Uh, 1987 brings No Retreat, No Surrender 2, which is a big kind of like watershed moment for her because that movie gets released over here pretty pretty wide, actually. I I don't know if I had a a limited uh, theatrical run or if it was a full theatrical run, but that movie like actually does some stuff. Um, I'm not going to say that it catapults her to fame and fortune, but it gets seen by Americans as opposed to most of these other movies, which weren't seen by Americans until much later when the VHS imports came. Um, The best titled movie in her oeuvre, The Inspector Wears Skirts, Rapid Fire, Jungle Heat, Writing Wrongs 2, Blonde Fury, a.k.a. Above the Law 2, which I have not seen but has been on my list for a long time city cops and 1990 which is her kind of this was her this was her blood fist like 1990 was kind of her her make or break year she was gonna either become a, a mainstay direct to vhs superstar or not and they released uh, china o'brien one and two both got released in 1990 um and i think they did that's a, how you do it just, just both make, of them both of them just bang bang shotgun that shit um, I have not seen either of these surprisingly. Um, again, they've been on both of them. They've been on my lists for a while, but I've never actually watched them. Um, but they do well enough to launch her career. Um, but they kind of, she doesn't ever really attain kind of for better or for worse. I think the best case scenario for her, given the breaks that she got was to be a Don the Dragon Wilson style. I'm a person who was in a bunch of direct to VHS movies, mm-hmm. which is, which is what she got. That's kind of what she was. But she never really – I mean, he was in fucking seven Blood Fist movies. And the most she ever was in was three Honor and Glory movies, which is cool. um, But, you know, yeah, so 1991 sees three Honor and Glory movies, then two Rage and Glory films, Lady Dragon 2, uh, Eye for an Eye, Checkmate, and uh, Tiger Claws 2. And that kind of – her arc kind of ends there, kind of like basically by the time the 90s had closed – she was pretty much not necessarily out of the game. She was in like, she'd like pop, she, she pops up in like sitcoms weirdly enough here and there. She's like, you know, I think she's in like a couple episodes of like married with children, you know, or like, I'm sure that the episode, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure the episode is like the, one of the kids goes to a dojo and she's the martial arts teacher, mm. you know, it's, it's that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but she basically kind of runs the gamut of this low budget world. Um, and then she appears in a bunch of movies has a good run and then kind of, you know, unfortunately there's only so much work for an actor that's A, a martial arts actor when they get older and then B, does she, because she was never given a real big breakout movie other than Yes Madam, her career kind of subsided and um, right now, which is super cool, she lives here in LA and in Culver City she runs a martial arts dojo which as soon as I read that I was like, so we're going to make a movie with Cynthia Rothrock now?
1: I mean, that's what I was just going to say is like her... Her career didn't come to an end because her best years are ahead of her. Yep. When we make a movie, yeah, yeah, starring Cynthia Rothrock, Yep. we can't pull Michelle Yeoh as much as I wish. Yep.
0: Put put Cynthia Rothrock in Star Trek: to Discovery. Come on, guys. What are you doing? Yeah, it's cool that Michelle Yeoh plays the Emperor of Empress of the Universe, but we're Cynthia Rothrock? Come on, we need a we come need on. a yes, madam, re- reunite re- reunion. Come on. Come on. Come on. So you know, that's kind of the overarching span of Cynthia Rothrock's career and I guess the question I would ask is right off the bat like there are so many people that are way more boring than she is now or ever was that have massive careers like Stephen fucking Seagal why the fuck wasn't she a massive movie star she was so great bums me the fuck out
1: yeah it does and it's really it's like it's certain actors like that that just it just it's so sad because it's like it just feels like the majority of their career was just a wasted opportunity and they just didn't quite they weren't quite in the right place at the right time to utilize their time to grow a really impressive catalog you know somebody like uh somebody like bob hoskins or it's like Mm -hmm. bob hoskins is fucking great but like he got who framed roger rabbit the long good friday uh a really good extended little cameo in brazil and like a couple of other things. If you don't say the movie that I know that you need to say,
0: I'll never forgive you. Come on. Say it. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of Unleashed. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do like him in Unleashed. But no. Come on, man. Super Mario
1: Brothers. Oh. Come on. <laughs> it, come on. I would have never even occurred to me to say that. Um but yeah, you know he he's so great, and it just feel like he, he he his catalog just feels so un- he still feels so underutilized as an yeah. actor. They're, they're so good, and it's it's not like that. It's not even that they were a one hit wonder. They they had consistent like work throughout the years, and throughout the years, throughout the decades, they had like a really great thing here, and then like ten years later, a really great thing, and then but then for some reason they just didn't seem to get as much uh, bang for their buck, I guess, and it's like. It always is just so strange to me because it's like if I, if I was if I was making movies like you better fucking bet I would have figured out a place for Bob Hoskins in my shit.
0: What the fuck is his name? Ladybird uh, or Lady Ladybird. Lady, Bird. Lady, Bird? Lady no, not Lady Bird. Lady Hawk. Blood of Heroes Soldier Blade Runner. What the fuck is his name? The screenwriter. I feel like that about him. What the oh, fuck uh, is that guy's name? It, David Peoples. David David Webb Peoples. Yeah, I I would put David Webb Peoples up against just about any screenwriter from any point in movie history, he's amazing. Yeah, and he hasn't actually had any real like one hundred percent hit other than Unforgiven. Yeah, because obviously the Blade Runner thing was the release was so fucked up, and the movie wasn't. You 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 know you know it didn't make money originally. Blah blah blah. Went on to become a classic. Yeah, there are Blood, a lot of, there are Blood, a lot of... of he- Blood of Heroes is an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, Blood of Heroes is the unofficial sequel to Blade Runner. It's a post-apocalyptic football movie starring Rutger Hauer and Joan Chen. And it's fucking unbelievably good. Um, it's, it's, it's brutal and poignant and depressing and a testament to the enduring power of, of the human will. It's great. It's one of my favorite movies. Highly recommend it. He wrote and directed it off of the kind of heat that he got from Blade Runner. And the movie fucking crashed and
1: burned. Yeah. and it basically just tanked his career for the next decade. And it just became one of those movies that you see on HBO when you're a kid. Yep, it's so good. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of screenwriters like that from that era. It's like uh, Bob Gale like wrote co-wrote one of the fucking most successful movie franchises of all time. And then just kind of never did anything else. He made like, he wrote like one other movie. And then like David Kep is over here just writing everything in yeah. the 90s, most of which wasn't very good. Yeah. And then like, and then uh, David O'Bannon. Or Apparently
0: we only like screenwriters that are named yeah, I David. Yeah, I just realized that Yeah.
1: That's so weird. I didn't even think about that. And then there's
0: David O'Russell.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, that guy. But, uh, or not not David O'Bannon, Dan O'Bannon. So it's not all Davids. It's not all David, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dan O'Bannon, he yeah. you know, wrote, wrote Alien. Wrote Alien, and then, Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, and that was like kind of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, he did a couple things here and there. But yeah, it was, He I think he had a lot of stuff that was unmade. Made some comics
1: with Mobius. Seemed like a really curmudgeonly dude. Seemed really... Fashion icon for the uh, <laughs> button-up shirt and... Uh, high water pants and oh, suspenders
0: yeah. look. Oh man, yeah, yeah. If I had my druthers, I'd look like a, a besequined Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. That's what I would tell my my private tailor. Yep. I want to look like Dan O'Bannon crossed with Liberace. <laughs> and he'd be like,
1: "Yeah, I, I got you, fam." <laughs> yeah. Comes back. It's like, look at these suspenders. They're all sequins. Sick. But yeah, to you know, to go back to Cynthia Rothrock, it's the same thing. Where it's just like, oh man, especially with somebody in that line of work where her. Her work was so physical. It's like the way the wasted t- years of you could have done, like, you, you could you have imagine, done so much
0: more. Can you imagine if instead of Walker Texas Ranger being fucking chump change, make Republican head? If it was her, if she was Walker, I mean, I that lo- would be
1: so much cooler. I'd love that, especially considering that I fucking hate Chuck Norris. Same. That'd be great.
0: What are your thoughts on the fact that most of this genre kind of bubbles up through the physical physical media pipeline of VHS cassettes? Like, do you think that stuff like this can happen again with streaming? Or do you think it's tied to a physical object that's, like, shared with people?
1: Uh, so, it's funny that you asked that because, so, normally... You're
0: starting a VHS distribution ring.
1: Yes. Cool. So, um, in general, I would say, I mean, there's def- it's definitely to the detriment. Because, I mean, in my experience, for me, um, every weird movie that I saw when I was a kid... Um, was from one of two things. It was either going to the video store and just pouring through the, you know, the, the, the side aisles, not the new release walls, but just like the genre aisles. And after you've watched all the main shit that's like recognizable, then you're just like, what else is in here? i I watched all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and all the Friday, the 13th movies. And so what is this fucking basket case movie? Like stuff like that. Frank Heddenlotter.
0: Yeah. He actually, Frank Heddenlotter just directed a documentary that I've been really itching to see. Do you know who Mike Deanna is? Mm -mm. So Mike Deanna is the only cartoonist to ever be convicted of, uh, distributing illicit materials to minors through comics. He made zines. He was a janitor at a school in Florida. He made zines and he used the school, uh, Xerox machine to copy the zines. And to make a long story short. I
1: think you mean mean Zines.
0: Zines, right. My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. Um, To make a long story short, they ended up in the possession of some police officers. They thought that Mike Deanna, because of the graphic nature of these zines, um, implicated himself in a local murder. He ended up being, they brought him in, talked to him, and it's obviously that he never killed anybody. Mm -hmm. But because of them seeing that he was a janitor at the school and made these zines, they were like, oh, you're distributing these around the school. And then, he got taken to jail and there was this massive court case and he ended up being convicted. And he is one of the pen, punishments was that he was barred from drawing, like legally prohibited from drawing while living in the state of Florida. Jesus. It's fucking insane. Yeah. And Frank Henenlotter, director of Frankenhooker and Hooker and Basket Case 1, 2, and 3, um, just made a <laughs> documentary about Mike Deanna. Um, and uh, yeah, I really want to see it. it. It did like, it played at Toronto like last year. So I'm hoping that- Maybe it'll get a streaming or Blu-ray release or something soon. I do too now. Uh, that was so adorable. I, <laughs> I, I do too
1: now. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so 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 that was the way that I discovered movies uh, and also tons of anime. Um, and then also, it's, it's pronounced anime. Oh yeah, sorry, Japanimation.
0: That's yes, yes, Japanimation. Uh,
1: and then the second thing was that I that I had um, HBO, and so you just would watch. HBO at night and see a combination of weird movies that they have in their library and also all the softcore porn you could wish for. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, like that, that doesn't exist anymore. Our current media consumption is a, is a selective opt-in style of media consumption. Uh, Number one, because there's so much shit that, you know, when we were kids, I, I talk about this a lot. My theory is, the reason why kids who grew up in the '90s are more well-rounded pop-culturally than later generations or even the generations that came before them is because we grew up in the dawn of the internet and uh, more specifically, or more importantly, cable television. So when we were kids, uh, all these cable channels popped up, and it was 24 hours of, uh, of of programming, but they didn't have enough original programming to fill the slots, so they would just, you know, play. Uh, they basically just were blasting the history of cinema in television into our minds because they had, they had 24 hours of time slots to fill and all they could do was just go back through their catalog or catalogs that they've purchased. And, you know, that's where we, you know, got to see all these old movies that would be played on HBO or, you know, the monster vision, like old movies that we played with these horror hosts and things like that. Um, Or like, you know, the Looney Tunes on Cartoon Network, like, there's, there's no reason why kids growing up in the 90s should have ever had any kind of frame of reference for watching the Looney Tunes, these like shorts that were played in front of movies in the in the 40s. But those are as part of our nostalgic childhoods as anything else, because they were playing alongside fucking Dexter's lab and all this shit. Um, so, you know, that sort of just sitting there and being shown just this random grab bag of things. Um, that just doesn't exist anymore because the way that we consume media is you have to go and seek out what you want to watch. You, you go and you say, I would like to watch this. Where is it at? Um, there's not really any concept of like, I'm going to go to Netflix and press the shuffle button. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was actually just thinking about this because I've i been in a Jeremy Saunier wormhole
0: recently. So I watched uh, Blue Ruin, Hold the Dark, Green Room, Murder Party. Basically on a loop. Murder party sucks. I mean, look, man, I'm just trying to get my fix, all right? Like, there's only so many movies the guy's made. I'm just trying to watch all of them. Um, Mostly I've been watching Green Room over and over and over. Like, it's a thing now where Nicole's like, if I come over, you can't put that fucking movie on. Um, And uh, it's insane to me that I would watch Murder Party. Literally, I watched it four times on Saturday. If I've watched a movie four times in one day, you'd think at the end of that movie... The card at the end of that movie would say, hey, do you want to watch another Jeremy Saulnier movie? Or do you want to watch Macon Blair's other movie? Fucking, I don't feel at home in this world anymore, considering yeah. he's the star of this movie and wrote uh, Hold Hold the Dark. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to you want to see this? But no, it's just leading me to other Netflix shows because it's trying to get me to watch. Yeah, it just wants you to watch The Witcher. Yeah, exactly. Or it's trying to get me to watch whatever the new season of... Insert show here is
1: yeah yeah so that's not a thing so that discoverability is just it's just if anything that's that has been inherited by YouTube in like watching fucking yeah, weird algorithm explainers stuff, yeah. and shit yeah. um, but you know it doesn't really exist for weird obscure movies and TV shows. Uh, however I will say s- to play devil's advocate to myself. Uh so I uh I wanted to watch um uh, a movie uh I wanted to watch a movie called uh Horror Express. Oh yeah, I love that. Uh, um, is that is that the same is that Siberian ex- Trans-Siberian Express it's the Christopher
0: Lee yeah, Peter Cushing movie? Yeah,
1: with with oh, uh, yeah. with the alien yeah, Rasputin. Yeah. yeah, 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 so, I love that movie. So it was With it
0: fucking telliesval showing up at the end as a weird Cossack dude?
1: Yeah. Fuck yeah, that movie rules. Yeah, so that I found out that it was available for free to watch on Tubi. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of stuff on there. And so I watched the movie and then it auto... After the movie ended, it automatically started playing this other movie called Black Sunday.
0: Yeah, I love Black Sunday.
1: And I watched that. And then now it automatically is playing this movie called uh, V, V V-I-Y. And it's it's like this weird Russian vampire movie with like I haven't even watched the whole thing yet. So
0: Oh, is that the crazy it's like crazy practical effects?
1: Yeah, it's like I've it's, never seen that, like, but so
0: many people have told me to watch that movie. I can't believe that's on Tubi. It is It's
1: like crazy ass, like like uh almost like it's like Russian Evil Dead or something. Well it's like Ru- it's like it's like this it's like German expressionism, like crazy. Don't say anything more. Yes. That is, I've been literally shit. I've been meaning to watch that movie for years. Don't say anything so more. So like Yes. I was watching this movie and it kind of, and it did that. And like, I like on this thing specifically on Tubi, it it gave me this weird flashback to my like childhood of watching HBO where I was watching one movie and then just some other weird ass movie came on and I watched that and then just some other weird ass movie came on and I started watching that.
0: Uh, that I did that like two or three weeks ago. I was also watching Tubi, but I've been watching a bunch of, so I recently read, it came from the video store aisle, the history Mm -hmm. of the full moon studios and so i've been watching a bunch of those full moon movies because they they have a distribution deal with tubi um most of them suck like really really suck um but some of the early ones are really fun and there's one called uh it's called desolation or oblivion i don't remember the name of it now but it's a it's like a science fiction western uh where it's like a you know, there's like a giant and there's like a giant animatronics or stop motion scorpion instead of like a, you know, a wolf that attacks this, you know, like alien Native American guy and alien cowboy guy. And the giant scorpions like and they have to shoot it with their laser six, six guns and shit. Um, but I I started watching. Uh, there's a ripoff Doctor Strange movie that they made starring
1: Jeffrey Combs and i've seen i've seen like uh pictures of from awesome that. it's awesome it's so cool i love i love just the look and the costume of that of him yes
0: uh it's called dr Doctor... i should know this i just watched the movie but i don't remember his its title now it's dr something it's his name um but after that it suggested that i watched have you seen this movie the visitor with it's uh john houston is the star the visitor I don't yeah think so it's fucking weird. And I was into it. Like, it's like, it's John Huston. I don't even, honestly, I kind of don't even remember what it's about because I was kind of in and out of the room because I was like drawing for a while and then I was putzing around doing shit. But the soundtrack is like weird, pulsing John Carpenter, like, deet, 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 deet. and the stuff I was watching is just like weird shots of John Huston walking around and talking to people in an ominous tone. And I was like, this is cool. I'm into this. But it's a perfect example of like, That's the kind of shit that you would just get at the fucking VHS, you know, the the store or whatever and take it home. And you're like, wow, I guess we're going to find out
1: what, you know, Faust is. Yeah, You just you grab things just literally based on the cover and then secondarily the blurb. Yep. Those two things line up for you. Yeah. You ha- you're you allowed to rent three movies per visit. Yeah. yeah. So you choose those ones. And then if you find a fourth one, you really want it. You put it behind Buckaroo Banzai because you know that nobody's ever going to go there and, and move that. I'm a little insulted right now. <laughs> We've already had this conversation. You said that exact same thing. Did I really? Yes. Oh, but God. the thing is, is that I'm not saying that I'm not I'm saying that nobody else besides me would go and be looking behind Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, for the record, I love Buckaroo Banzai and uh, Earl Mac Roush is a genius. And
0: we should probably do an episode on him one day, so I won't say anything more. And on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew
1: Price. Please sub the show. And you can find me online at heydavebaker.com. You can find me online at slash PokemonFanDBZ. Also, DA Price writes. Dot com. I'm rage quitting the show. You're going to have a new
0: host next time.
1: I really wish I could find my old Geo City site where I, uh, it was a combination Dragon Ball Z Pokemon fan page. <laughs>